Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Lighthouse Young Writers Camp convenes every summer for a week of multi-genre writing, snacking, and friend-making. At the end of each week, the young writers choose a piece to share with an audience of over 100 listeners. These are the stories from week one, our fourth through eighth graders. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to hear these young writers. We have had a spectacular week with them. They are so kind, so smart. It's amazing. I mean, we have adult events down here all the time, and a lot of these young writers could definitely read at the adult events and hold a candle to the adults for sure. Um, We have had a lot of bagels and a lot of storytelling and a lot of unicorn ducks, and you're about to hear all about it. Um, So let me give a couple thanks, and then we'll dive straight into the reading. Um, Thank you to our amazing instructors, Joel Jacobson. Jessica Long. Um, Kim O'Connor and Andrea Moore who is here this morning who's not here right now so we'll clap for her um, and thank you to our amazing intern Katie Henderson and Katie will be emceeing and introducing everybody else so let me give her a quick introduction and we'll get started Um, Katie is a prolific reader and writer. She's currently working on the fourth draft of her first novel, The Calculus of Havoc, an an epic journey taking place in America after the devastating effects of climate change. On her free time, she dances, acts, sings, runs, and manages a charitable organization called Kids for Kenya. She is 14 years old and will be attending high school next year. Hello everyone, I'm Katie Henderson, and first of all, I would like to give a thank you to Meg Nix. She is the youth program director. She is amazing. It is because of her that we are all here today. She is amazing. Okay, so really quickly to get us started off, I'm going to write a quick essay, I guess, that I wrote about the Lighthouse summer camp this year. And yeah, so just to give all the parents and the siblings and friends just an idea of what we do here at Lighthouse during our summer camp. So, okay. It has become increasingly hard for young people to find safe haven in this dangerous world. So what a gift the Lighthouse Young Writers Program is, where I can personally say I have found a home. I stumbled upon the Lighthouse Young Writers Program two years ago while taking a four-week class about creative nonfiction. Writing can become such a solitary effort that it was such a gift to find this community. Um, I remember walking up to the Lighthouse House already buzzing to write about the minty green lions and the purple morning glories climbing the iron gates. I surrounded myself with other young writers, and I learned so much both about the craft and myself. 
I came out of the class appreciating the excitement of my life, and I enjoy writing creative nonfiction to this day. My story is only one of countless stories about young writers coming to Lighthouse to find inspiration, friends, or any number of other things that are so important. This week, July 28th to August 2nd, the Young Writers Camp takes place, perhaps the biggest event of the year for the Young Writers Program. Last year, I participated as a camper, and this year, I get to be an intern. What a great excuse to spend a whole week at the Lighthouse House. Over the course of the week, the Young Writers get to partake in three different classes, one-act plays, fiction, fact and fiction, and memoir. At the end of the week, everyone chooses their favorite piece they wrote this week, and they share at a reading. This is where you are. Um, a uh, anthology comes out in September. The pieces created in this week show so much talent and insight, as well as humor, of course. Today, we did an exercise in which we had to write down things we found boring and write a true story where the boring things become exciting. I have never listened to so many dramatic supermarket stories in one day. In the same class, one girl wrote a powerful memoir about her dad. She spoke of his alcoholism and his distance, and she compared saying I love you to chewing on mud. It sent shivers down my spine, and you will get to listen to it later. But beyond the learning, the writing, the workshopping, and the sharing, the friendships are built. Over the past two days, I have heard so much laughter coming from all corners of the house, including the bathroom at lunchtime. I have listened to tragedies about dry erase markers, band-aids, and unicorn ducks. I have witnessed multiple heated debates about Minecraft, Twilight, along with discussions of things like cancer and stereotyping. Harry Potter is a constant theme, as well as unicorn ducks and writer's block. It is a vibrant community of passionate writers, and friendships are inevitably creative. The Lighthouse Young Writers Program is safe haven. I remember coming home after a class one day and thinking, it really is a lighthouse. Every time I would come in, weighted down by a hard morning or an event at school, I could hold my head up high with the idea of coming to Lighthouse. It is a beam of hope. Here's to Lighthouse for creating the next generation of young writers. Okay, so our first reader is Charlotte Grace Anderson. Here, there she is. Okay, Charlotte Grace Anderson is a writer who prefers writing longer books and stories. She also loves tennis, gymnastics, and hiking. She has even climbed a 14er. She loves dogs, babies, and pandas. She wants to be a singer and actor. She enjoys nearly everything else, too. And with her is Ali Sabah, who will be assisting her on her one-act play. So, Charlotte, do you want the mic? Yeah. Hi. Um, so, I wrote a one-act play, and Ali Sabah is going to help me read it. Um, this play is called The Checkmate. Yes. Um, I will be playing Tom. And I'm going to be playing Rose, so I hope you guys like it. Checkmate, Tom! What? No fair. You can't move the pawn that far. Ugh, this game is so boring. Count me out. I'm going to do something more exciting. You coming with me, Tommy Tom Tom? Do I have a choice? Nope. You're babysitting me, and I'm going outside. Sorry, Tommy Tim. 
Fine, but after 15 minutes... Let's go to the Orgum Cave. You know, I'm more of a chess guy. Yeah, so let's go. Rose, why do you go so fast? I honestly don't. You're just really slow. Rosette Joy Toinette, you sass me again. You'll be at home in a flash. You're not my mommy. Whoa! Huh. I know these crystals are probably 1,000 years old. Are they going to fall on us? I don't think. Boom, crash. It was like glass shattering. <laughs> ah! What was that? Hey, we should check it out. Okay. Look. I don't see anything. Look up. Whoa, hey, look. Ice cream cone crystals. They look like my favorite waffle cones. All we need is some strawberry lemon sorbet. Yeah, right. And look at the walls. I want my walls in my room like this. This kind of pretty purple is my favorite of all the colors, Tom. Well, let's... Boom. Okay, Tom. Enough admiring. I'm out of here. This MacBook Air is awesome. Hey, Tommy Tim, why don't you look up loud noises in caves? Okay, fine, one second. Now look it up, Tommy. Ugh, you're really annoying. So what does it say, Timmy? Oh, I guess so something really did fall. Stalactite can fall and make loud noises in a cave. Well, I guess that clears things up. Oh, yeah, you know something, Tommy Tim? What? You're a wimp. Oh, shush, you're the wimp. You ran away. I know. It wasn't a me thing to do. No one else? No. What? I was wondering. Yes? Want to play chess? Thank you. <laughs> okay, up next we have Sonia Bartia. Sonia? There you are. Okay. Okay. Ready? Okay. Sonia Bartia is a 10-year-old girl who enjoys writing poetry, drama, and different types of stories. Her favorite her favorite subject to write about is fantasy, but today she will be she will read about Harry Potter, which she is beyond obsessed with. As a pianist, she likes activities such as singing, reading, basketball, and swimming. She lives in Centennial, Colorado with her father, mother, sister, and dog who is a total brat. Hi, I'm Sonia, and I'm going to be sharing about a memoir. So, sharing a memoir. I slowly stepped onto the, green, onto the lime green structure and strapped myself in with a posh buckle. I grasped the metal handlebar as, as the machine started to rise higher and higher. Making sure I was as comfortable as someone tightly strapped to a tiny leather chair could be, all I could see was blank emptiness. Suddenly, as if out of nowhere, a dragon skeleton lit by a glinting orange light appeared. A fiery glow gave it the look of being set on fire, and the feeling increased even more when puffs of odorless smoke flew out of its mouth and into my eyes. Unfortunately, this was when the employees decided to take a family picture, and the camera clicked at the exact moment I squinted my dirt-bred eyes and scrunched up my abnormally large nose. That photo was definitely not going on our Christmas card. Next, to my great dislike, we took a little trip to deep in the forest where Aragog and his little, or in better words, enormous, arachnid loop lived. Now, for me, it was unforgettable, but still probably one of my worst nightmares come true. This is because if I could choose 
one creature or a group of creatures in the Harry Potter series, it would be Aragog and his family. As we glided by each acromantula, the giant spiders shot saliva in our faces. A drop of venom landed in, my, in the corner of my eye once, but I did nothing to clean it out. I was so paralyzed that I never wanted to let go of that safety bar. I had just regained focus when Hermione Granger's voice came on. Oh no, I think you're heading for the Whomping Willow. In a flash, the ferocious tree appeared on screen. It started thrashing around immediately, cracking the screen and sending us tumbling in all different directions, even upside down. My stomach was churning as it lurched up to my throat, but I didn't dare let go. What would happen if I did? Would I fall deep, deep down until I hit the cold, hard ground, seriously injured or worse? It seemed like a miracle when Hermione's voice came back on. We'll have to use fire, incendio. My seat was upright again. I opened my eyes. In front of me stood Harry Potter on a broomstick, leading me towards Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Well, on a screen. Hi, I'm Harry. Sorry about that. I was running late. Good thing Hermione found you. Come on, now. Better get going. And with that, the scene changed to a perfect view of the medieval castle, where towers stuck out from every end. Wow, that's amazing, I heard my mom exclaim. It's like it's out of a dream, I excitedly said, not paying too much attention to my family. Only the scene didn't change. That's when I realized that our four-seated vehicle wasn't moving. I, glanced at, I nervously glanced at my sister, sister as though asking for an explanation. I think the machine stuck, answered Mom, as if reading my mind. In the end, we had to sit and observe the picture for five minutes until they fixed the movement. However, I enjoyed it extremely due to being stuck in such a gorgeous part of the ride, even though I did feel a little bad for the people who would be in empty space or stuck upside down at the Whomping Willow scene. After examining every little detail of the school, we exited the beauty and started back on track. I've got to go see Hagrid at the astronomy tower. You should come with me, shouted Harry. So we flew around the castle, examining its established architecture and luscious pine trees. After about 20 seconds, we arrived to see Ruby as Hagrid and Ronald Weasley waiting. Hey, Harry, look what I got, Hagrid barked in his rough voice, revealing a fully grown dragon. My immediate thought was, this can't be good. I was not wrong. Hagrid released the dragon just as Harry and Ron grabbed their rooms and we wished by with them. Eventually, the dragon backed off because we had reached the Chamber of Secrets. Gigantic serpents gazed down at me. The screens had vanished from every angle. Shades of green, gray, and black were the only colors I could see. I could feel my heart racing. Thump, thump, thump. Just as we were leaving the chamber... Bam! The emerald green basilisk that had its blood-red tongue stuck out and was glittering in the fluorescent light was now face-to-face with me. Luckily, we only had to squint at the frightening monster for eight seconds as we flew out of the chamber of secrets just to hear Harry say, Oh, no! Because just when I thought it was over, there was one more thing left. As we came out of the door, I could make out hooded black figures with long, thin fingers. Dementors. Yes, dementors flashing in and out of my eyes. I couldn't tell if my ears were playing tricks on me or not, because I could hear the sound when you open a door that doesn't creak slowly, but much more spine-chilling. My eyes were heavy, my brain was wuzzy, and I actually felt as if all the happiness was being sucked out of me every second. I squeezed my eyes shut and thought, just let it be over. I could hear soft exacto patronums in the distance. Just let it be over, expecto patronum. I opened my eyes just to see a silvery light and the screen reappearing. 
My family and I were now zipping under a crumbling rock ceiling, following a nervous Harry Potter. Finally, we escaped the massacre and found ourselves at a, the Great Lake under the front of the castle safely. Well done. Now, this is the end of our journey here, but enjoy the rest of your visit in the visiting world. Thanks for coming. Bye. And it all ended with that as we successfully went through a wall of neon green smoke and landed exactly where we started. Now, the experience was most definitely blood-curdling, but I will never forget the day I rode the forbidden journey at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Thank you. Okay. Up next, we have Evie DeSort. Come on, Evie. Okay. Okay. Evie DeSort is Korean. She was born in Centennial and loves art, jump roping, and hula hooping. She dreams of being an artist and wants to set a world record. She also likes to write cartoon comics, and she will be reading her memoir. Mothers are so hardworking and take the time to help us, but my mom, I think, is the best mom in the world. I think my mom t- stays home every day to prepare my family's meals, cleans the house, and lets me and my family do fun things like go skydiving. And go skydiving, of course. <laughs> Mothers can be strict, but they just want the best for us. Regardless of what you do, your mother will always love you, even if you break their phones. They'll always forgive you. Next end. Okay, up next we have Emmy. Come on up. Oh, goodness. <laughs> okay. Okay, Emerson Derupe, I'm sorry, Dupree. Henry is a young writer who enjoys to read and write poetry, fiction, novels, and plays. She loved to be scared and write about supernatural activity. She enjoys illustrating her own writing and laughing. She hopes to become a lawyer that writes graphic novels and to never lose her creativity. Emmy, everybody. And with help, we have Charlotte back up and Allie back up. Okay. Do you want... Well, um, so I am playing a character named Kevin, who is part of a street gang, and, um... I'm playing Dylan. Who is also part of a street gang, and... I'm playing Caroline. Who is a random teenager. Yeah. (laughs) I hear her coming. I told you she got results. I'm still not sure. I mean, she didn't really have a lead and trust us just about as much as I trust her. I only managed to get my hands on the health records and medical examiner office records. That will be enough. How old are you anyway? How would you even get this junk? Answering questions was not part of the deal. Give me my papers. Wait, did you say M.E. records? They found Clara's body? I never knew. Here are the files. Pulls orange folder from sweater and throws on ground. What do you want with these dumb pet files anyway? Aren't you supposed to be, like, part of a street gang or something? Because if you are, you're not very street smart. No questions, just files. I can kill you, little girl. Right here, right now. (laughs) Pull a stack of stapled papers out. You don't want to do that. Snatches papers from Kevin. Uh, thanks. Now get out before I shoot you. You know who I am, and you know what I can do. 
I'm just like Annabeth. Turns around and begins walking. Annabeth, how do you know her? Pulls out pistol. You dare speak that name, you filthy liar! Shoots Caroline in back. What the? Why did you do that? Kevin stares wide-eyed at Body. How did this lady know? I, I thought this was about... Clara? She was her sister. Whose sister? You are making no sense. I thought this was because, because we both loved Clara. Clara reminded me so much of Annabeth. I had to kill her. Now the curse is coming. What curse? How do you... How could you do that to me? I loved her. What have I done? I feel the cats closing in already. I knew this would happen if I ever harmed her family again. Her body! It's moving! <clears throat> Your name is now cursed. This is the day you will start to be haunted by those of my family you have killed. Now meet my friends. Ha 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 ha! Sir... The alley cats, they're growing. We can't get out. It's either be shot or face them. Points to mutating cats. Why? What the? Kevin pulls out gun, shoots Dylan, then himself. The end. Okay. Up next, we have JoJo. Come on. Joanna Derpy Henry has always... Sorry. Derpree. I had this earlier. Derpree Henry has always wanted to have chickens. She is nine years old and is in third grade. She has a dog and two hamsters. She loves to write fiction. She has an awesome older sister and loves tennis. She loves hamsters and loves to write about them from their perspective. She will read her play. This is a play I wrote, and it's called The New Job. I got a job as a sign twirler. Wait, what'd you just say to me? I got a job as a sign twirler. Okay, you're telling me you went from a professional writer who wrote like a million best-selling books to a dumb old sign twirler? I thought you'd be happy about this. I finally got a new job. That's why you wanted, right? I wanted you to get a better job, like a paying job. <laughs> well, you didn't say that, so ha-ha to you. Well, that's what I meant, so ha-ha to you. Whatever. Give me an example of a good paying job. Maybe a lawyer or an iPad maker or a, a diner or a, do, or a doctor or something. Well, you're a lawyer, so I can't be one. That makes no possible sense. And plus, you could be one of the other things that I said, like, like a doctor or something. Husband picks up sign and starts spinning. <laughs> <laughs> what in the world are you doing? practicing for my new job. Stop it! You're going to break something! You said practice makes perfect. <laughs> Wife turns on her computer and checks her email. I just got fired! Oh, and look, I got an application for a job as a sign twirler with you. I'm so happy! Did you just, like, say you're happy about being a sign twirler like me? I never told you this, but I guess you should know. I've always wanted to be a sign twirler. That's why I wanted you to quit. I didn't, I didn't want to be jealous of you being a sign twirler. Never saw that coming. <laughs> I know. Give me that sign. I want to practice. Husband gives sign to wife. Okay. Thank you. Wife starts sp sp spinning sign and breaking the house. Okay. 
Okay, Milan Hancock likes to write fiction. He wants to be a game writer. He's nine years old and has a dog named Milo. My name is Millen, and I'm doing a, um, a story that's called Monster Soup. One day, I went to a restaurant, and I ordered monster soup because I didn't know what it was. When I got it, it was neon green. I tasted it. It tasted horrible. So he asked the waiter what it was made out of. And he said, monster, of course, with just a pinch of alligator. So I ran three miles home. The next day, I got on my computer and checked the reviews. They were bad. Thank you. Up next, we have Rishi. Okay. Rishi Hancock likes to write fiction about nature. He is nine years old. He likes to swim, play soccer, bike, pogo stick, and play basketball in his free time. He also has a dog named Milo and a fish named Goldie. So, I wrote a fiction story named Zulaland. Zulaland is a place where magic happens. In Zulaland, you can find sharks that can fly, and you can find animals, mixed animals. And most of all, it's where imagination is stored. Once upon a time in Zulaland, there lived a wood eagle. A wood eagle is a mixture between an eagle and a woodpecker. If you want to find one, you, you can surely find one in Mirlock forests near the bay. Well, anyways, the wood eagle was snoring, snoozing on the bay when he noticed that the king of the jungle was coming, a mixture between a python and a hawk. The wood eagle hated the king. He always came and took all your money. This time, the wood eagle was going to give him a piece of his mind. He flew up, and even though he was only six years old, he still went up and scratched the king with his claws. So hard that blood started running out. The king just laughed and put the poor old bird in a cage and took him back to the castle. Castle. He waited in the cage on the bookshelf for a few hours, thinking about how to get out. Then an an idea came to his mind. He put his beak through the keyhole. It didn't open. He pushed harder and harder. He pushed as hard as he could. He pushed as hard as he could for four minutes until finally it opened. And he flew home to tell his parents. Thank you. Okay, up next we have Nikki. There she is. Okay. Nikki Marcoux likes to write fiction stories about anything that comes to mind. She dreams of living in California by the beach. Her hobbies include reading, writing, jumping off river waterfalls, and dancing in the kitchen. She likes to take adventures, and she will read her memoir. My memoir. Instead of actually river rafting, I was in the river itself. 
Let me back up a little. My aunt, two cousins, my brother, and I all decided that we would go visit part of our family who lives in Durango for about a week. After a tiring six-hour drive, not including the awful traffic, we finally made it to our family. My favorite adventure that we had was when our cousins Larkin and Tai Tai took us to a place called Cascade. In Durango, they have areas where you do activities by yourself, so no tour guide or anything. There's Adrenaline, a faster and more dangerous version of Cascade. There's Bakers, where you jump off a very tall bridge into a beautiful crystal blue waters below. Most people decide to do Bakers. There's Cascade, where you run or walk in the freezing river and constantly have to jump off river waterfalls the farther you go. The waterfalls gradually got bigger throughout the whole thing. They looked like big watery beasts crashing down onto unseen rocks in the depths below. I remember the journey like it was yesterday. We started out nearby a tunnel and stepped into the glacial water. At first, it wasn't so deep, but after a little while, it rose to my knees. One thing to know about Cascade is that when you jump off the first waterfall, you can't go back because you're always jumping down. The first jump was exhilarating. When the water was over my head, I swam to the surface with a look of a dis- with a look of excitement on my face, despite the cold water all around me. The more I jumped, the better the journey became, but then came the big waterfalls. Some of them ranged up to about 25 feet. Those were scary the first time, but now that I think of it, I would be willing to jump them in a heartbeat. The first big waterfall, there were two options. You could either take some slippery rocks, almost as a slide into the water, but since there was such a big current that day, the pressure of the water could hurt us, or there was a big, slippery, steep rock we had to climb. We clung to the sides of the topaz stone before jumping far out into the river below. After much coaxing on the biggest waterfalls, I took a deep breath and jumped. The thrill of just knowing you're flying off a waterfall is incredible. I remember my brother Michael and two older cousins, Robert and Judd, wanting to do backflips and tricks off the falls. Luckily, we persuaded them it wasn't the best idea since it was their first time. Finally, the last few waterfalls were coming up. But the very last one was the most nerve-wracking thing I had ever done last summer. You can do it. Just close your eyes and jump, I heard my cousin say over the loud rush of the water. She saw the look of terror inch across my face. Don't worry about it. I'll jump with you, she cheered. I looked down at the rest of my cousins who were already swimming happily in the water below. Three, two, one. We grasped hands and plummeted into the water. When falling, the air whooshed around me like a mini tornado. My heart felt like it stopped for those few fast seconds. Splash. I hit the water all too soon. Many bubbles flew up in my face, making me laugh and getting water in my mouth. I kicked my way to the surface. Thalia Majorano is a sixth grade student. She enjoys writing action, science fiction, and poetry even though she plans on being a wildlife biologist and a journalist. She lives in Littleton with her family, five cats, and a dog. Her hobbies include guitar and exploring the area around her home. The creek flows, crashing in the rapids. The pebbles move with the tide, clashing together like percussion. Wolves howl a serenade on the distant mountains. The wind's haunting cries blow through the pines. For Then, for a sparing moment, everything is still. And a nightingale begins a long, eerie song. The others join. Leaves float on the breeze, spiraling and brushing together. Dust is caught in the wind, tracing its trajectory. The The mid-September night, alive with music, eerie, bone-chilling music, deep, thoughtful, wise, disappearing into the dawn. Okay, Meredith Nide is a writer of realistic fiction, historical fiction, and poems. 
Um, Meredith enjoys listening to music, playing soccer, dancing, reading, and writing, and doing crafts. When she grows up, Meredith wants to be a doctor, an author, or an astronaut. Meredith has an older sister, a younger brother, two supportive parents, and an inspiring parakeet. Today you'll hear a poem of sounds described by images. Okay, um, I wrote this to music, so it's called The Curtain Closes. Simple, silky, silver curtains dancing in the brisk wind. A crumpled ball of dull green paper sitting like a stone on a hot pink desk. A swing with a kid kicking frantically upon it. A crystal chandelier in a junkyard. The puffiest dessert with vanilla bean ice cream topped with powdered sugar. A young lady strolling in the park looking for love. The spring sun emerging from a blanket of rain clouds. A white blouse. Foaming waves tickling someone's toes. A shy, meek monster ducking into the safe blackness of one's closet. He is friendly, unique, someone worth meeting, but he is never found. Gloppy hair gel. Pale red paint. Drip, 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 drop. A doll maneuvered by a little boy's hand. Tiptoeing. Getting a piggyback ride and tumbling off. A quilt. Feelings. Swelling from your heart into your brain. Out your mouth. Or actually, out your eyes. Can you read eyes? Tell which ones are happy, thoughtful, airbound, angry. Jubilant colors popping on display. A plain, dull, graphite-based number two pencil. The history of mankind. Sound in a silent room. The curtain closes. Nadia Kier Top, also known as Aiden Patrick, enjoys writing poetry and fantasy. She loves piano and has two cats. Nadia loves writing at Lighthouse because the teachers are amazing. She has a 13-year-old sister, and she likes to play outside. So um, this poem's called The Guarding Lions. Two minty gray metallic lions guarding the entrance, snarling expressions, hard cold eyes staring at you, an unruly metallic mane showing the lion's toughness and seriousness, watching everyone who passes, keeping us safe. Those lions are the guards, standing there, watching for eternity. Their eyes never dart around or even move. They're stuck, staring at the street, watching everyone go by or even approach the building. An undying interest in the surrounding parking lot, in workers, cars, trucks, people, everything that's surrounding that area. Until one day, far in the future, they crumble, leaving the dying building unprotected. Unless fate makes it a different way. Just those two lions. They make us think about the future of Lighthouse, of Denver, of Colorado of Colorado, of the world. Every problem that existed, this all goes down to describing two lions guarding us. The notes flow... Oh, by the way, this one's called um, The Poetry of Music. 
The notes flow from the keys of the piano like a river, each note sticking in my mind, my fingers playing without even thinking about the notes, listening to the song like I'm not playing it, looking at nothing, thinking about only how beautiful it sounds, listening to the pedal thumping like the beating of my heart, thump, 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 thump. My audience disappears, it's only me and the piano, me and my music, me and my love. A similar feeling to poetry, your your hands moving, not even thinking about the notes you play, the words you write. My loves are music and writing. They take me to another world, another place full of love and beauty. The feeling in my heart, thumping with excitement, tuning everything else out, loving what I do, thinking nothing except how beautiful it is and how much I love poetry and music. Ali Sabah is a ten-year-old, is ten years old, and is a fiction writer. Currently, she's working on a novel about Greek gods. She enjoys to sing in the shower, play piano, write, and act. She likes to explore the mountains and plans on being a marine biologist or teacher when she grows up. This piece you are about to hear is her memoir. Okay. and I'll be reading my memoir. Thanks. The waves, speed, the fear of falling in all struck me in an unhappy way. We were safe inside the boat, but I felt I was in the water myself. All I could think about was the fish, the bloody gashes across their faces. Ooh, I caught one, my sister exclaimed happily. I groaned. All I, I felt so bad for the fish. You'll feel better soon. Look at all the fish... Around the boat, my mom said. Suddenly, the driver of the boat, Ebby, started to shake a bag of chum. Chum is a concoction of chopped up fish put in a bag and placed underwater to attract the fish. Basically, a bag of dead fish. But just after a few minutes when he shook the bag, a huge school of fish swam by. My heart was leaping with gloom. Since I have four fish at home, it broke my heart to see the fish getting treated so badly. I didn't know what they felt like. How would it feel? Look, what's that? I burst out. An immense dark gray figure, as dark as a colossal rain cloud, came floating towards our boat. What is that thing? I remarked. Does anyone hear me? When it got closer, we realized what it was. A giant, full-grown, male, hammerhead shark was chasing the school of fish attracted by the chum. It had scars all over its chest and back. It was kind of scary, but not that bad. This mo- that moment I will never forget and will cherish forever. Thanks. Okay, up next we have Francine. There you are. Okay. Francine Wright is a writer of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. She really enjoys listening to music and finding rhythms and patterns in everyday sounds. Francine loves mythology and has won two gold medals and one silver medal for completing the National Mythology Exam, NME. She also loves to swim, ski, play tennis, and play basketball. She has two dogs that she adores and a loving family. So much relies upon the old grandfather clock, standing tall and proud and chiming out, tick-tock. The ancient grandfather clock near my grandmother's door with polished dark brown wood that is resting on her floor. That dusty grandfather clock speaking upon the hour, 
Ding dong. A note blooming like a flower. So much relies upon the old grandfather clock. The world doesn't know what it means to hear. It's tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Okay, up next we have Olivia. Olivia Young is is 10 years old and is in the fifth grade. She has four pets, including her sister. Her goals are to become a dancer and a writer. She has the best family in the world and the best friends in the city. She wants to learn all the languages in the world and travel the world. She loves to meet new people in her very interesting and exciting neighborhood. Me. My hair is long and daring. My hair springs, and when you pull them and let go, they spring into action, into life. My eyes are brown, round, and exploring. Heavy, nice, and my personality is kind, true, non-self-centered, and responsible, too. My goals are easy and simple. I want to become a writer and a dancer. I have friends just as good as me. My skin is biracial. That makes me proud. I'm not always an angel, but not always a devil. My style is not simple, but in the middle. No, I am not perfect, but yes, I have humor. My family is really awesome. I am lucky to have them. Thank you. Sonia Zakarian is 10 years old and already has big plans to become a writer, best-selling. When she grows up, um, besides writing realistic fiction and dramatic fiction... Um, Sonia is a sister, a daughter, a dancer, a swimmer, a tennis player, a pianist, a reader, and a writer. She gets ideas from a regular kid's life in Colorado's sweltering heat and, bizarrely enough, in the shower. Through her mother, though her mother has a hard time convincing her showers are fun, she secretly loves getting ideas in there. And she's reading dramatic poems. Or is... Uh, one dramatic and another just realistic. Hi, I'm Sonia, and I will be sharing, um, again, a dramatic poem and also a realistic one about my brother. And I'm going to start with that one. A three-year-old brother. Light brown hair, curly as a doll's. My brother can't stop going on about Batman, Spider-Man, Wolverine, motorcycles, rocket ships, jet planes, and airplanes. But who else could list what else he talks about, being such a chatty Kathy. He insists on being a zombie race car when he grows up. And, w- and when he's asked who ever would do that, he says, me, 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 way to go for being original, Kyle. I can't wait until he turns four and passes my law, the law I just invented, that when you turn four, you can't kick, hit, scream, cry, yell, or tackle. But three is a troublemaking, funny age, and Kyle is just one of them. One of them that passes that age. Especially boys. They're so violent sometimes. Plus, when I don't have anything to say, he's such a chatty Kathy, you can say enough for both of us. Kyle kicks, hits, punches, screams, yells, cries, and tackles. But when he hugs me and tells me I'm the best sister ever, it is definitely worth it. Thank you. Okay, and my next one is called Nightmare or Not. 
and it's a dramatic poem. So, yeah. Okay. Nightmare or not? Pasty dark blue walls lock me in, shrinking down at me like I am an ant and they are the giants, though the real giant is you and you've known it all along. The ceiling going skyward raises up into the endless midnight sky and looks down at me with one thing in mind, torture. A ray of moonlight sparkling with doom seeps in through the broken window crack on the ceiling. The coffee table underfoot has an array of different colors. Black, bland brown, rusty old orange, and the color of dark, dark red, almost crimson, maybe even purple. The color of what soon will be my bleeding remains. The color of flesh. Who are you? Doors align the walls, glass doors with dark red smudges on them, smeared across like strawberry jam on bread. Locks, I am locked in. You are locked in. We both are locked in. Together. What are you going to do to me? I stare into dark red eyes, full of revenge, hard as coins, copper red and shiny with delight. That is for me to know and you to find out, you say. I hate you. The bottoms of my feet sweep against the forest green rug, brushing sharply on the surface of my already scraped up heel. It crumbles skin, leaving a faint talisman. Suddenly, something prickly meets my toe. I didn't want to end this way, I scream. But I did, the mystery voice, or your voice says. You tromp round me, feet stomping powerfully. Loud noises speaking your emotions for you. I can't move. I will move. I can't move. This is a dream, a nightmare caked with pure pain. Dream with me, dreamer, end this nightmare. This is no nightmare, you say. I can dream. I can love. I know what to do. You don't. You're a monster. I'm a monster, you say. I can't dream. Does it have to end this way? Thank you. So Cassidy Cole is a writer, dancer, a thinker, and an avid seeker. She never goes anywhere without a paper and a pencil, and most of her adventures consist of scribbles in her notebooks and scratches and words sketched in mud. She has a passion for photography, paddleboarding, and traveling. She, der- she derives her inspiration from little things in life like the needles on a pine tree and the wings of a bumblebee. Someone once said that anger keeps us free. Or was it that anger keeps us freer than when we started? I met my dad every day I was with him. Some days he was the dad with greased back hair and dark sunglasses covering his drunken eyes. And some, he was the one with with the flannel shirt, beach balls spilling out of the pockets with blue eyes, sober and solemn as ever. I hated those dark sunglasses. I hated that grease that slicked back his hair. When I was little, I would shake my stubby little fingers through his plastic-like hair and messy it up like the dad I liked best. He would then just, he would then, I would just keep running my fingers through his hair until he just walked away. Now is the one slipping from his grasp. He is living with a world of personalities, darting from one to the other, never quite comfortable with the one he was in. 
but the alcohol is the poison, slipping his sunglasses behind his ears and sliming the gel into his hair once again. It used to be that I could swing my arms around him and tightly clasp my wrists behind him, white-knuckled and red-skinned slipping, but not letting go. He is not that dad anymore. He doesn't hug anymore. He does, but it's like hugging a wet fish, slippery and resistant. He wears clothes that are a size too small and jeans that are pre-ripped. I don't mind pre-ripped. He just never wore jeans in the first place. He now shaves his face and wears cologne and has shoes that click when they hit the floor. He just isn't my dad anymore. He just isn't. The word father is like chewing mud as a child, trying so hard to tell myself it was pie, but blaring out so loudly that it was mud. Cold, wet, mud. Nothing else but saying I love you was a lie, said by both and heard by both. You're too sensitive, he always told me. Well, maybe I am. Maybe it only takes a small pinch to make me bleed or a slight breeze to make me cold. Maybe all my crooked toes on my, and bruises on my leg from the constant mistake and fortes and PK sway the way I walk. My hair is thin and breaks easily. The common cold is a bit more common to my body and I might fall one too many times over my own feet. But I couldn't. But couldn't an overdose on sensitivity make you stronger in the end? I like to believe sensitivity is a blessing and that it will work in my favor one day rather than his. When I was in kindergarten, I never understood capitalization. If you're supposed to capitalize the important things, why won't you capitalize dad? Now I understand. And that is the memoir that I was talking about earlier. Noah DeSort is 12 and is going into 7th grade this year. He wrote about the hipster apocalypse where swag, YOLO, and hashtags are banned. (laughs) Noah loves sci-fi, fiction, and fantasy. His hobbies are swimming, video games, reading, and many other things. The apocalypse is a fiction which is his preferred genre. His friends always say hashtag YOLO and swag influencing the apocalypse. Does everyone know what a hipster is? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to keep these? Okay. A hipster is someone who wants to be hip. And to be hip is to be fashionable and upbeat with everything that's going on. The year is 2013 and the day is Tuesday. We are in the future. Much has changed. The electric Snuggie came out. A new crossbreeds of humans have sprouted. The end is near. The crossbreeds are known as hipsters. They pollute, smoke, do drugs, and worst of all, Instagram everything in sight. Titanic 2 and Hunger Games revolutionized are signs of the end. The minds didn't predict this, but I did. Swag, hashtag, and YOLO are banned. But hipsters still use these expressions. To evict their evil ways, you have to spray them with water and soap to clean them. The year 2013, day Wednesday. My name is Noah. I am the supreme leader of the resistance in the war against hipsters. At 5 o'clock, I sent a spy to study their ways. However, he came back with a flat-topped hat, plastic sunglasses, swag shirt, and sagging pants. We washed him down. (laughs) The year 2013, day Thursday. Recently, government aid came. Our mission is to infiltrate Walmart and pick up our supplies. We were supposed to get soap, water, goggles, spray bottles, and sponges. Yesterday at 1 o'clock, hipsters entered our base. My general alerted me, and we searched our underground base with 
canines. Sadly, my log entry from yesterday wasn't finished. The hipsters were found using our TV for Titanic 2. The year 2013, day Saturday. I've, infect, I've been infected during a trip to the mall. I'm scheduled for a wash in 30 minutes. Also, the hipsters cry and infect me more from yesterday of, OMG, Jack is back! <laughs> the year 2013, day Sunday. The wash was unsuccessful. Swag. As of now, I'm in quarantine until help arrives. Hashtag yellow swag. I must resist the hipster influence. The year 2013, day Monday. I'm resigning and will be used for study in the facility. Swag YOLO. The year 2013, day Tuesday. This is my last entry. I will disappear off the face of the earth for humanity's hope. If all goes well, we will eradicate the hipsters. That's it. Okay, yeah, there you go. Lucas Gardner is a 12-year-old author who loves to read. He has an interest in fantasy and history, so he wanted to blend them together. The result? A novel called The Last Soldier. After a school assignment in fourth grade, he discovered writing fantasy novels. I'm going to be reading an excerpt from my novel, The Lost Soldier. Let me fill you in. Leo has a large gash on his chest, which becomes important later in the story, shedding some light on his past. He has also been captured by pirates, bound to a chair, and is being held in a small room next to the main deck of the pirate ship. Here's a taste of my writing. The boat shuddered, jolting Leo awake. The wind howled around the ship, and Leo could hear rain pouring outside of the room. He was captive in. Claps of thunder split the mist. The musty outside. Suddenly the door was flung open by the wind. Leo jumped at the opportunity to escape. He threw all his weight forward and tumbled towards the door, sliding through the doorway still bound to the chair. As soon as he had escaped his holding place, rain soaked him and lightning flashed momentarily, blinding him. The boat was being plunged into wave after wave, being consumed by a terrible storm. Another wave swept across the deck, dragging Leo up powerfully and slamming him against the side of the ship. The chair took most of the blow, shattering under the force of the wave and freeing Leo. A wooden splinter dug into Leo's back, and his grunt of pain was deaf as more salty water bubbled in his mouth. (laughs) Would this onslaught ever stop? Leo thought, desperately gritting his teeth as he recounted his bad luck. The wave was over as soon as it had begun and left Leo gasping for breath. He shakily climbed to his feet as the boat swung violently. The gash across his chest stung from sea salt, but Leo was getting used to pain. Leo surveyed the wrecked ship. It seemed like God himself had unleashed this horrible storm. The mainsail had toppled down, completely destroying half of the ship. Leo was amazed that the ship was still adrift. Waves constantly pounded the boat, and there were places where lightning had blown off large chunks of the deck. Pirates were rushing around everywhere, and a few waterlogged bodies were strewn across the deck. Okay, up next we have Talia. So, Talia Gordon is a 12-year-old student, writer, and lover of books. She enjoys writing poems because they allow her to use the words she collects in a word bank. But she can't write plots to save her life. She spends her time researching her various obsessions, including hummingbirds, the genetics of horses, and Latin. She's avidly awaiting the start of school. Do you want to just hold? Okay, so this poem is titled Darwin on Evolution. 
Once you told me that time beads sugar sweet on spider-like roughshod branches swells into satin, sometimes I wonder if evolution could convalesce into peaches. Blushing iridescent, you said fruits are the bloodstream byway, sunsets caught in goldenrod sunshine solidified. I told stories of summer solstice blooms melting into oblivion, jasmine snoopernovas painting half a million stars, half a million years ago. Your whispered words caramelized, slipped into sleep-sodden lullabies like ripening the revolving hands of a pocket watch like white water. Once you told me that sometime, somewhere, secrets are beginning to rot, and I said I'm sorry, and laughed, and laughed, and laughed. Thank you. Ben Hofstra is an enthusiastic young writer who sadly forgets everyone's names. (laughs) He has a tendency to write pretty crazy things such as lamppost phobias, lonely drops of yogurt, and glimpses into the future. He loves writing short stories and making people laugh. I stare at my hand, a plague of uncertainty creeping up from the darkest corner of my mind, for my empty brain is stubborn as iron bands. Even as I fight it, an idea I cannot find. Uncertainty's plague and the scattered thoughts of my empty brain lower my soul to a pit of despair. But an idea starts to form, casting a bright glow over the machines of my brain. And the gears start to whir, and the sight of it is too much to bear. But even as the hints of the idea start to unfold, the, the uncertainty fights back with a ferocity. It tears at the idea, planting doubts in every nook and cranny. But the idea just shakes them off and grows an air of confidence. For the only thing the attempts are doing is adding to his growth. And the idea prevails, casting aside the uncertainty. So uncertainty is replaced by commitment, and my brain fills with thoughts. And in its golden glory rises the idea of a poem, thought through with true passion. And that was only the beginning. Tia Karkos is a 7th grader at Slavens Middle School. She enjoys writing and is is hard at work on a science fiction novel. In her spare time, she enjoys cross-country, spelling bees, destination imagination, watching TV, and reading. She resides in Denver, Colorado, and loves her cats very much. All the books I've never read, sitting on the shelf. People recommend books to me. No. I decide myself. The early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. I'm not the first to own these shoes. I'd have outgrown them by now, you see. All the books I've ever read, you'll understand there's quite a few. Some are old and battered with spines falling off. I prefer old to new. The planets closest to the galaxy center are luminous, well-connected souls. But I'd rather be a quiet, outlying asteroid because they don't get sucked into black holes. Lauren Kenyon uses songs to inspire her poetry. She was born April 19th, 2001, and Lauren writes poetry and fiction, but has trouble writing history. I'm going to read three poems that I wrote. First one's called Cleansing. Rain falling, droplets glaze the windows. Sounds like little feet pitter-pattering around. Each raindrop, small and unique on its own. 
opening the door, stepping out in the falling water, letting it soak me like a cleansing, purifying me, standing there laughing, smiling, and spinning. So I dance, dance in the rain, not caring about anything else. Okay, my second one is called Drummer. You can read it, you can say it, or you can write it, but it all means the same thing. You can walk, you can run, or you can dance, but you're hearing the same beat. You can believe, you can disbelieve, or you can wonder, but it is all the same voice. And then my third one is called The Runner. Heart pounding in my ear, warm breath on my sweaty neck, branches slapping my face, run, runner, an endless trek. Running from myself, my heart I need to resurrect. What happened to me? Run, runner, an endless trek. Gnarled trees grabbing at me, trying hard to inject. Their points and leg, their points into my arms and legs. Run, runner, an endless trek. Running from me, I am a wreck. No point to stopping, nowhere to go. So run, runner, and endless track. Thank you. So Sophie Martinez is a very, very, very unusual 12-year-old girl. She has a bad tendency of being lazy but determined when she writes. But all in all, she gets the job done. She prefers the ocean over the mountains, and traveling is a big part of her life. If she isn't with her family, she's trying to keep her friends and or sister out of trouble, unless she's the cause of it. Her goal in life is to make change or to be the change, and she believes that every child should be as fortunate and loved as she is. All right, so the poem I'm going to read to you today is dedicated to an amazing and powerful document called Girl Rising. It's about eight, girl, eight girls in third world countries and their struggle for an education. I hope this poem inspires you just as much as it inspired me. All right, it's called Clockwork. Look into a brown chiseled eyes and see a reflected being in a perfect captured picture. Didn't you notice the strips of fatigue that consume her young eyes? Maybe only few contemplate the ghost that shakes her spine and seals her mouth when it dares to open. For some reason, she cannot slide her perplexed fingers on a crisp sheet of paper at eight in the morning and breathe it to life. Nor can she use her lips to explain her bewildered and much-for-granted mind. No, for she is bound by the bronze chains that engrave her children's feet to the cracked floors of unethical thoughts. For words, they will never begin the crumb trail to the truth. You must be able to identify her path, past before claiming you can pick up a crystal ball and determine her fate. And even though the moons and stars place her young, her eyes have aged with every solid second she faces her reality and fails to escape. The aged and new slowly start to fuse into one, consciously ignoring her innocence. And what always keeps me staring out the window in sort of a brain-dead glance is how we acted like a small ball in bingo, twirling and twirling and twirling until fine being placed in our illogical state of mind. How we were missed, passed, unconsciously looked over. A slip of a second and we could have been flipped, could have been tossed, thrown off our original path. It could have been us. 
But even so, when everyone is asleep, she takes out a mask of a warrior from under her straw bed, places it on her feeble face, and she dreams. Dreams of the day when her voice will be strong and her words will collide with the minds of her dictators, sending them plummeting down the hills. And as they stand, they will notice their wounds dripping with blood and will realize they are all the same. And now her crack lips dare to heal and her gaze rises from the dirt and grime to conjecture the truth. And oh, what a truth she spoke. Don't say it is my culture to blame, for this wasn't the way it was written to be. And don't say you're on my side. Your silence says it all. So Cassidy next loves to read, which has inspired her to be a writer. She rock climbs, horseback rides, and plays the flute and oboe. So the piece I'm reading today is a memoir. Do I have to go? I whine to my mom as the car lurches to a stop. Yes, we've had this conversation. Grandma loves teaching you how to swim. My mom answers with a roll of her eyes. Then why is she always so cranky? I hate these lessons, I grumble. Go put on your bathing suit. My mom ignores my complaints. I stomp into the Hiawatha Recreation Center, mumbling under my breath. My great-grandma Edith is about 5'2", and steadily shrinking. She teaches me how to swim and wears ugly red swimsuits. Her nails are always cut to the quick, something she nags me about, because I don't like to cut mine. I've never seen her any way other than with her frizzy gray hair on a, in a tight bob above her head, pulling at her eyes. Despite being so small in stature, she has a remarkably intimidating demeanor and a very loud voice. She's just starting to get Alzheimer's disease, so she mixes up phrases and says things that don't make sense. For example, once, when my cousin told her to say, excuse me, when she farts, she replied with, don't tell your grandma how to milk ducks. It's, wi- it's widely known she's lost her marbles, but our family just pretends everything is fine. As soon as I emerge from the locker room, smells bombard me, and I'm immediately clammy from the humid air that the walls hold in. I've always wanted to swim in the adult pool, but Grandma doesn't think I'm old enough, so instead I have to swim alongside the slides that are randomly set out in the kids' pool. Get in the pool and do freestyle, she commands as I trudge down the steps and stare longingly at the duck slide that spouts water from the sides. All the other kids are on this slide. I wrap up my musings and begin swimming before Grandma reaches me. Straighten your arms. Breathe through your nose. Your eyes better be open, she yells demands into the air. I'm trying, Grandma. I say, frustrated at my inability to please her. But the act of opening my mouth floods me with the taste of unnaturally warm water, chlorine, and perhaps a tinge of pee. I immediately spit out the water and resume swimming. Now flip and backstroke to me, she orders. No, no, like this. Backstroke with your belly up high, arms straight, and eyes to the sky. Now watch my freestyle. She does a quick but graceful flip, and I watch attentively, desperate to get it right. All of a sudden, I notice something faded white, almost yellow, falling out of her mouth. I watch in fascination as the mysterious white thing floats up and around the pool, straight to my chest. What is that? I whisper to myself. Oh my gosh, is that teeth? It's teeth! And I let out the most blood-curdling, ear-splitting shriek. My grandma's teeth were knocked out! Help! Help! 
help, help! Grandma's gnarled hand clamped over my mouth. She growled. What? I asked, confused. She shoved the teeth back in. They weren't knocked out. They fell out. I have fake teeth. I stood and stared at her, my mouth hanging open and my eyes slightly red from chlorine, giving the impression of a stunned demon. Thank you. Caleb Pan believes that he is an unknown creature that came from another dimension that got stuck in a human body. He is a bookworm, detective stalker, insane person, writer, scientist, and too many other things that are far too mysterious to solve. He likes to write fiction, poetry, and short stories. He writes fiction about random things that run through his crazy mind. All right, so um, this was based off of a true story. Be free. That's what they all said to him. Be free and do what you want. Those words cost Kevin everything. Why did he ever have to listen to them? Why did he ever have to leave his true identity for a few worldly artifices? Before that, we were the best of friends. No, we were the best of best friends. We had been friends for nearly 16 years, ever since we were born, which was obviously the first day um, we met. I don't remember much, but from that day forward, we did everything together. I can still remember the days when we had invisible lightsaber duels, or when we ruled our kingdom of dragons and unicorns together. Uh, I still remember the times when we would practice our multiplication tables or fractions together. I still remember the times when we would study for a project or listen to music together. What, 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 what? What had happened to those days? Those countless hours of enjoyment now seemed so intangible and undetectable. I still remember whenever we needed to part, he would always say, Farewell, Fairest, and then give me that cute smile of his. Those were the days when he had, he had the nobi- nobility like a prince, walked in the path of righteousness, and was in the pursuit of perfection. He didn't need to, though. He was already near perfection in most people's eyes, including mine. Yet even all that, Something changed. He was no longer Kevin. He wasn't the Kevin that we all loved and knew. Um, I don't know why he listened to them. I may never know. After he changed, he started to degrade. When he did, Agni pierced my heart like an iron sword covered in magma. Uh, I couldn't see him like that. I don't know what had changed him. He hit the source, the reason. Or what, whatever it was for me. Like if, I, if he were the pen, Pentagon and I was Al-Qaeda, trying desperately to keep my hands off of some top-secret government file. Maybe he was tired of being Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Maybe it was hard work being who he was. Maybe he found other interests and was tied to them. Perhaps addiction. Perhaps guilt. Perhaps something that would help him escape some dark memories. Whatever the cause, I loved him like a brother. I couldn't bear the pain. Whenever I saw him, tears came to my eyes. His filthy and greasy hair, his dry pale skin and um, and cracked skin, his former athletic body reduced to ashes, his once noble and handsome face now looking beyond repair, his clothes now resembling rags, and his red, swollen, desperate eyes scared me the most. Where had his nobility disappeared? Uh, Where did his nearly perfected 
uh, physical and mental aspects go. He slowly degraded at first, his condition, condition slowly dropping. As more time passed, it dropped faster and faster, unstopping. When he first stepped onto that deadly path, he became fallen, but didn't redeem himself. Instead, he kept going down that road until it felt like no way out for him. He didn't want to pick himself up again and dust off. He just continued to, to be idle in his dark prison cell he created for himself, slowly suffocating in his thoughts of being worthless. He had dropped his beautiful chilthy, but stepped on it and smashed it into oblivion instead of picking it up. I wanted to help so badly. I tried reconnecting to him, tried giving him back his nobility, tried giving him strength and hope, tried, gi- tried giving back his wisdom, back wisdom, tried saving him from self-destruction, tried giving back him his real self. But no, it seemed like the name Olivia Frost had slipped from his mind. He had continued to eat the fruits of his ways, the ways of destruction. Soon he couldn't take it anymore. I gave one last strong attempt, trying to breach the thick walls he made around him, trying to climb that high fence he had built. I pleaded to him, but he refused, and paid for the price tag that was invisible to him. I can still see that horrible image, his bloody chest, the knife sticking in his heart, that his bloody fingerprints on that knife held. I traced his name one last time, carved in that gloomy cold stone. The moon glowed softly, illuminating his name. The thin mist curled up around me like if it were trying to hug and comfort me. Right now, I was too sorrowful and angry to be comforted. I closed my eyes in conviction to try to escape this reality. I got up and began walking away from the tombstone. I stopped, looked back, and whispered, Goodbye, Kevin. And then I, heard, I then thought I heard someone gently whisper to me, Farewell, Ferrist. I looked away and closed my eyes. I finally let my heavy, hot tears fall and stream off my cheeks. Thank you. Stephanie Rold loves Greek mythology and being descriptive, and she's writing a novel right now. She's pretty unusual compared to the average 12-year-old girl, but that just makes her unique. She's always quiet until she knows what people are talking about, then she's deep in the conversation. She's a sophisticated wild child who wishes to be a world-renowned author. So this is a poem I wrote um, about describing an object in the house. Golden metallic bells glowing in the dark, glimmering with streaks of orange and red. The light makes it sparkle. The colors resemble fire. It sparks my imagination. They remind me of flowers blowing in the wind. But in these golden bells, there's a light shining as bright as a star, making the whole piece shimmer, waiting to be in a museum. Yet there is more. There are bronze leaves attached. They aren't as shiny as the gold bells. But the leaves are a good final touch. A bronze woman is connected too, holding the stems of the flowers. She has beautiful hair and posture. She looks happy and strong. The golden bells with the lady attached makes a gorgeous piece. They all complement each other. It's a shining work of art.
Ayana Spear likes to read in the car, and she doesn't understand why people don't. She doesn't know how much she reads every week, but sometimes stays up to midnight reading. Her current favorite books are Harry Potter and The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. Ayana is a huge fangirl of various books, movies, and TV shows. She's going into eighth grade at the Compass Montessori Farm School, although the farm part is not as fun as it sounds. I've always imagined the inside of my head as a round, circular tower. The tower is six stories tall, and there are just six simple, round rooms. I've imagined one of the rooms has drawer cabinets around the edges of the rooms, some of them open, some of them closed, and some of them locked. All of my dreams are in these drawers, and the dreams that overflow out of the drawers and fall on the floor gathering dust are nightmares, the cruelest ones. There is a window in this room, and dreams slash nightmares fly out of it and into my brain whenever I sleep. Another room is bare, blank, and empty. What happens to my brain when I am in that sleep that has no dreams? The top room of the tower is dark and scary, filled with spiders and cobwebs, where all of my fears during the day come from. This is the room that starts my panic attacks, and I can never shut the door on it. One of the bottom two rooms is filled with all of my left brain, analytical thoughts, the place where all of my math talent comes from. The other one is my right brain, creative thoughts, where my writing and art comes from. The, other, or the last room is a library, huge and bigger on the inside. It is filled with all of the books I have ever read and even those that I have not, though my favorites are the most easily reachable and this library is where I go when I read. I've always loved to read. I think I learned to read when I, read when I was three, or that's what I'm told. At bedtime when I was little, my dad or mom would read me children's picture books. My favorite was The Moon Lady. I remember those nights. I would be lying in bed with my head on the pillow, and my dad would come in to say goodnight to me, and we would pick up a book, usually The Moon Lady. My walls were pink at that time, and the light reflected off of them onto my dad's face. He would start reading, and I would look over his shoulder at the words as he would read. After it ended, he would tuck in the sheets around me and turn on my nightlight. He would turn off my big light, and I would fall asleep to stories of the moon lady swirling in my head. I devoured books when I was little. I could read a 200-page book in one day, although I did little else besides read. Now I can't read a 200-page book in one day. It might take two or three if I did nothing else. But I believe I noticed things in books that I didn't notice then, little details that might not seem important, but actually are. It is amazing to be able to dive into a book and live in a world that is entirely unlike our own. Sometimes that world is worse than ours, apocalypses and bigger wars, but sometimes that world is so much better. The amazing thing about books is that an author, a human being like you or me, wrote an entire 300 or 400 or 200 page book using only 26 letters and 10 digits. People create entire worlds within these limitations and that is incredible to me. I don't know when I started making up stories. I think I have always done it. At nighttime before I fall asleep, I make up stories. I make up stories in my head when I'm bored and I don't have a book, which is a rare occurrence. I didn't start write, actually writing these stories down until I was around 10, but I made up stories in my head plenty before then. I think one of the first stories I ever wrote down was about an orphan ballerina girl. I continued writing from there. Sometimes when I wasn't reading in my sister's concerts, I would make up stories. One of my favorites, and also the reason I didn't put my feet on the floor, was that there were sleeping darts sent under all of the seats into the audience's feet. I have an overactive imagination. 
Harry Potter was my first love of, bo of a book series. My family listened to them on the drive to Yellowstone every year. I don't remember what age I was when I first read them by myself, but I know that the first time I read the fourth one, my sister put a binder clip around the scary part with Voldemort so I wouldn't get nightmares. This is funny now because I read dar darker books than she does, and I'm sometimes the one who says she shouldn't read a book because it is too dark for her. Somebody once said, J.K. Rowling didn't just change my life. She shaped it, and this is true for me. If I hadn't fallen in love with books and if I hadn't read Harry Potter, I wouldn't be who I am today. I'm reading a play I wrote called A Man and His Moth. I'm playing James, a young man who has fallen in love and plans to marry. He has come with his fiancée to tell his mother about it, seeking her acceptance. And Cassidy plays Mama Frankie, James' disapproving mother. She's slightly overprotective and doesn't like when things stray from the norm. The setting is Mama Frankie's small, plain living room. James, his fiancée, and Mama Frankie stand in front of her couch. We're getting married. Mama Frankie laughs. I'm dead serious, Mom. Jamie! My name is James, Mom. It's a mop, Jamie. I know, Mom. <laughs> you can't marry a mop. We love each other. Can't deny our love. It's a mop. It can't love you. Stop being so racist and bigoted. You're hurting her feelings. It's a mop! It can't have feelings. All it can do is clean the floor. But, Mom... Give me that! Mama Frankie reaches for the mop, but James slaps her hand out of the way. How dare you, you insolent boy! Give me your stupid mop right now! I'm a grown man! I know what I'm doing! No, you don't! And why do you say that? You're trying to marry a mop. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Everything in... Her name is Miranda. You named your mop? Her parents named her. The dumb mop can't have parents. It was created in some factory out of wood and cloth. It isn't alive. It can't breathe or live or feel or think. And if it can't do that, it most certainly cannot love you. In that instant, Mama Frankie grabs the mop and snaps it in half with her knee. Mom? It's for your own good, Jamie. I told you to call me James. Settle down, Jamie. I just wanted you to accept me. Jamie! But you wouldn't listen. You never listened to me. So you ignored me and took your twisted, bigoted mind and you killed her. My one true love, my sweet Miranda, is dead. Dead because of you. You murderer, you monster, you terrible, evil woman. You're not my mother. James grabs the pieces of the mop from Mama Frankie's hands and pulls them close to his chest. Oh, Miranda. Stop hugging that. Go away. Throw away the stupid mop. It's broken. Because you broke her. It's not a her. It's an it. Stop hugging it. Stop it. I love her. You need a therapist. I don't. You do, Jamie. Don't call me Jamie, and I don't need a therapist. You tried to marry a mop, Jamie. Because we love each other. You don't. We do. Give me your stupid mop, Jamie. No. Let go of your stupid mop. Racist. What did you just say? You're a racist. I'm racist to mops? Don't mock me. You're insane, crazy, mental, mad. I'm not. You are. No. Give me that. Mom and Frankie grabs the pieces of the mop. Give her back. Jamie. Call me James. 
You aren't having this mop. What are you going to do to her? I'm going to burn it. <laughs> I wanted you to understand me. Well, Jamie, maybe you should have just tried to be normal. <laughs> Mama Frankie exits with the mop, and Jamie falls to his knees crying. The curtains drop. The end. <laughs> Last, but certainly not least, we have Saul. There he is. Okay. Solomon Valor Kaplan enjoys writing poetry and short stories. Some of his favorite books are Ender's Game, The Da Vinci Code, and Life of Pi. He likes playing piano and competitive soccer. He doodles anywhere and everywhere and likes playing ultimate frisbee with his friends. No, I'm good. All right. But that was not the end of the lights in the forest. They kept on flashing, orbs of bright light temporarily illuminating a small section of the forest, like large fireflies refusing to stay inactive. Jack stares out at them, longing to venture out in the forest. His piercing blue eyes strain to see the trees beyond his foggy window. His mother calls his name. Jack! He pulls away from the window and heads towards the bedroom door. He pulls it open and it creaks on rusty hinges. He walks outside his room, waiting for his mother to call him again. She does, and he's able to find her easily. What, Ma? Were you staring at the lights again? He hesitates. Yes, Ma. You know you can't go there. Your father did, and we never saw him again. Jack nods. But the lights, he hesitates. They have something to tell me. They know something. No, they don't. You will stay here. Jack gives a sigh of resignation and walks back to his room. His mother is surprised. He usually puts up a fight when he mentions the lights. She shrugs and walks back to her bedroom. Jack swings open the door, attempting to make it as quiet as possible, then sneaks down the stairs and runs towards the front door. He opens it, hoping it won't creak, and it doesn't. He breathes in the cool night air, and moonlight reflects off his dark hair as he strides towards the gate. He feels free as he shoves the heavy gate open wide, walking through it into a pale meadow. Dirt and leaves crunch under his leather boots as he walks confidently towards the forest. The meadow stretches on for a while, until finally he passes a tree. He runs his fingers along his rough bark, before coming to another, and another. Soon he is surrounded by trees. As he walks deeper and deeper into the forest, the trees get bigger and closer together. He starts slowing down as he nears the very center of the forest, the place where he first saw the entrancing lights. He sees a clearing up ahead. He comes close to it and finds a tree, gnarled with age. He tentatively rests his hand on a branch, and then he climbs, putting hand over foot on the old tree. Soon he reaches the top. He looks down at the clearing. Below him we can see the six orbs, floating gently around the clearing. Their light floating almost lulls Jack to sleep until he snaps to attention. I'm not here to sleep, he thinks to himself. I'm here to learn from the orbs, to see what they have to say. He leaps down from the branch, landing gracefully on his feet. His voice booms out in the already silent clearing. What do you want to tell me? The orbs show no sign that they hear him. He asks again, What do you want to tell me? The orbs start spinning faster and faster until they are a whirring mass surrounding him. For the first time in his life, a shadow of doubt flies through his mind. What if they don't have anything to tell him? What if his mother was right? No, he tells himself. I can't be wrong. They do have something to tell me. They work faster and faster, closing in on him. He stands in the middle of the orbs, helpless to prevent them from closing in on him. They continue to approach. Soon they're a foot away, then inches, then centimeters. And then there's a flash of light and everything goes black. Jack sits up, a bright light shining on his face. 
Where am I, he wonders. He realizes he's in the forest, and then he stumbles to his feet and walks away from the clearing. Soon he reaches the edge of the forest. Up ahead he sees a cottage. He sprints towards it, and he opens the door. His mother runs up to him. Jack, Jack, are you all right? He stares at her, dumbfounded. Who's Jack? Later that night, his mother sits at the window, staring out at the six orbs that her husband had, but there aren't six. There are seven orbs. Seven since they took her son. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.